What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? How you living? Question for you. Can climate change be funny? It's a rather serious issue. It threatens our world, so you might be inclined to say no. There's nothing funny about it. But I mean, black humor exists, and it's one of my favorite types of comedy. Pretty popular form of comedy. But when it comes to climate change humor, I'm not really talking about funny in like a nihilistic, we're all gonna die or let's fiddle while the earth burns sort of way. I mean, what if learning about climate change, all the nuance and complexity that comes with it, was more fun? Funny, even. Would this make the whole situation a little less overwhelming? Less politicized? Well, my guest today certainly thinks so. Ethan Brown is the host of The Sweaty Penguin a podcast that just might be the funniest show that deals exclusively with an existential threat to humanity, climate change. Ethan and I talked about using humor as an entry point into this subject, how his first introduction to climate change in the eighth grade led him to believe that, yes, jokes were needed. We also talked about the criticism that using humor to discuss climate change means you aren't taking it seriously. And he gave some really interesting thoughts about what it means to take subject seriously and how that involves honesty and digging into the nuance and looking at all sides of these solutions and problems and weighing the costs and benefits. So I can say of Ethan, despite his humorous attitude towards his show and his science communication, he's definitely taking these subjects seriously. So I thoroughly enjoyed talking with Ethan, and I really enjoy his approach to climate communication. He also gave us his tips on things we, can, we as individuals can do to try and help out in the face of this overwhelming and, and vast problem. The Sweaty Penguin, his show, is presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise, and can be found wherever you get podcasts uh, via their website, thesweatypenguin.com, and of course, on all the social media. And before we get to the interview with Ethan, remember, you can also get in touch with me. 2bradforyou.wordpress.com is the website. All of the information about contact details is there, how to leave us a voicemail, how to get in touch via email, 2bradforyou at gmail.com, and of course on the social media, at 2bradforyou on Twitter and Instagram. So please, please, please get in touch. Let me know what you think of this interview. Let me know what you think of climate change. Let me know what topics you would like me to cover next. Thank you so, so much for listening, and here's my conversation with Ethan Brown. Ethan, thank you so much for reaching out. Thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, yeah, let's jump right into the the show. The Sweaty Penguin is the name of your podcast, um, as folks heard in the intro. But I'm curious as to your background in terms of, you know, starting a climate change podcast. Do you have a, a background in any sort of climate science or science or communication or broadcasting or none of the above? What, what brought you to this point? Sure. So I was not at all outdoorsy growing up, was not connected with nature. Uh, actually, this go down a whole rabbit hole. But um, as a kid, I was doing a mental math stage show. I performed all over the world. I uh, was on the Fox TV show Superhuman. I did a lot of cool stuff with that. Um, But that was really about trying to make math fun and interesting for people, uh, which is a bit of a scary topic. I ended up kind of losing interest in that in high school. And that was around when I started learning about climate change. And 
I was really freaked out by it. I was scared. I was overwhelmed, but I didn't find it interesting. I didn't find it fun to learn about. So I was sort of toying with the idea of doing something with it, but I was really, I was getting into film and television at the time, actually. That was what I was applying to college to study. And I was feeling like if I'm doing that, I'm a storyteller and I need a story to tell. And this seems really important. So I started taking some classes on it in college. Eventually, I decided to do a dual degree with environmental analysis and policy as well. But really taking those classes in college, I started to realize that a lot of what I was finding overwhelming was maybe stuff I had some misconceptions about. A lot of the politicized aspects there's actually a lot of climate solutions that span all over the political spectrum and aren't even political at all. And so I was kind of developing this communication style throughout college where I was trying to break those barriers to be maybe a little less overwhelming, use some more critical thinking, be add context, uh, avoid mixing the policy with the facts and kind of separate that out. I was also at the time running my high school and college satire publications so I had a lot of experience with comedy writing. So once quarantine hit and I was bored, I sort of combined all these different things together to form The Sweaty Penguin. Nice. I mean, so much of what you said there is really interesting. I mean, it's cool to me uh, to hear that right away, you, you, from, from the moment that you kind of learned about climate change, you were like, you had that idea, like, this seems overwhelming, but I want to try and communicate it or I want to like dive into it. And then that kind of helped shape your career through college and, and, and everything like that. Like, it seems like the, the, the topic really must have resonated with you to decide that like, hey, this is something that like I'm going to pursue for, you know, a couple of years now culminating in this thing. Yeah, I remember in eighth grade, my science class it was the first time we were going to address climate change and the way it was done. Um, and this was across the school curriculum, so nothing against that particular teacher by any means, but um, the way it was done, they had us pick a side whether we thought climate change was real or not, and present our arguments and have a debate. And that just frustrated me so much as an eighth grader, because <laughs> even though like I didn't know much about climate change, <laughs> I certainly valued critical thinking. Um, like I said, I was a very mathy person at the time. So that was, I was like, facts are facts. And there's clear evidence uh, to support climate change. There isn't to the contrary. So I think I always, even if I wasn't like excited about it, so, like something just compelled me to feel like I needed to find ways to communicate it better. I felt like because it was so overwhelming, I experienced it myself. I wasn't finding it interesting. And I thought if maybe other people can find it interesting and find it fun to learn about, then they'll actually engage with it. And then we can make progress on it. Well, and then so that right there brings me to something else that you said in that in your sort of intro there, just, you know, storytelling is such a big part of science communication, something that I learned from a couple mentors and stuff like that. But again, like my background, biology, not having any formal training in communications or anything. This was the thing that I learned right away is like the best communication. It's storytelling. It's all storytelling. And then layer on top of that, comedy, entertainment and stuff. It's like, this is kind of the way, um, the best way to sort of communicate these things. But then it's also, we're talking about 
climate change, which is very serious. And like you said, it, it, it's overwhelming. How many articles have I read about climate dread, you know, in the millennial, <laughs> you know, generation? Oh, climate dread. Everyone's got climate dread and getting depressed and stuff. So to think about that, like to cue in on that and then say, what if this was fun to learn about? It's so interesting to me because it's like, it's almost like you want to be like, well, no, this shouldn't be fun to learn about. This is a serious topic. But you're taking this this totally different tact. And I must say, it's probably the funniest podcast about the most serious <laughs> global threat <laughs> that's out there. So kudos. And then, like I said, I, I'm not sure I even really have a question there. It's just a statement of like, well done. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I have had people express concern that by, like when I say we want to make this more fun and less overwhelming, they're like, Oh, so you're not taking it seriously. No, that that's not at all the case. I think a large part of what we're doing is humor is one tool in our toolbox to make it less overwhelming. That's not our full approach. I think a big thing I sort of contextualized in my head a couple weeks ago when we did an episode where I brought this up, we have been making progress on climate for years. We certainly haven't made enough. We haven't made it fast enough. But emissions in the United States peaked in 2007. They're down 12% since then. Uh, coal use for electricity has gone down by 58% since then in the US. Globally, the recent IPCC report, certainly there were some scary things in there, but they said that we're projected to warm by three degrees Celsius by 2100, which not good, but in, at the time that we were signing the Paris Agreement, that was four degrees Celsius. So there has been improvement, just not fast enough. And I think just that little shift means something. Like, I think we always think like, oh, we got to start acting on... No, we have been. We just got to do it faster. Um, on top of that, I think about climate change is already here right now. And that, I think, is a barrier for a lot of climate communicators is... How do we make this less overwhelming? How do we talk about solutions when it's happening and it will continue to happen? To me, I reframe that rather than saying, how do we stop climate change? I think about how do we get climate change under control? How do we make it something that we can live with, that it's as close to what we have now as possible, where we lose as few lives as possible, lose as little money as possible, preserve our food, water, all that. I think that's a much more attainable goal. And again, it's like these small little shifts in mindset that I think still take it seriously, but also make it a little bit less overwhelming. I think if we're completely overwhelmed, then we disengage and then we're not really going to get anywhere. So... Those are the kinds of things we'll think about. Yeah, well, it's like, for sure, right? Like, if people think it's hopeless, then it's like, well, what's the point, right? So you get that aspect of it. And then I think you definitely get probably some backlash kind of reaction to all the negativity where people maybe just, you know, because it's, there's so much negativity around it, they want to just escape from that. So they end up in the, well, it's not real camp. Or it's not something that we need to worry about camp. And that's not good. <laughs> that's not good either. So it's like your, your approach. And I think the uh, I was going to bring this up. I think the episode that you were uh, just talking about with the, the latest IPC 
CC report. I had it in my notes. I flagged it as one of the episodes because like that's such a like such a great approach in my mind. You know, it resonated with me this like, no, we are doing things like we've done things like it's it's not like we we haven't started. It's not like this is, you know, this massive hill. to Well, it's still a massive hill to climb, but we're already climbing it. It's, you know, maybe that like makes the barrier of entry for people a little bit easier to be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, no, 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 that's right. We are. And I think it's like, with so many things, you hear some of these guys, science, science communicator guys, or I, I guess it's like Steven Pinker, his big thing, but he was always talking about like, you know, how much progress the world has actually made, right? Like, if you look at like violent death, and, you know, poverty and all these things, and it's important to remember that. But again, you get this like, backlash of people being like, well, then then you're not taking any of these problems seriously. And I wonder if we get so stuck in these binaries, it seems, lately that seems to be a problem of the world and of communication is like it's it's either one thing or it's the other and so i just i really appreciate the sort of middle like line and nuance that you're bringing to it and i think it's an important message yeah to me taking a problem seriously means being honest being critical being nuanced and i think that that can be a challenge for people i was at a press briefing last month with a uh, michael mann who is possibly one of the, if not the world leading climate scientist. And he had been doing research that basically found, uh, so there's this concept that sort of has underlied climate science, where basically the greenhouse gases we emit into the atmosphere are absorbing solar radiation. And so at the time that we stop emitting greenhouse gases, that get that down to zero, uh, hopefully that time comes someday. If we reach that point, then the conventional wisdom was that the climate would still continue to warm for several decades because the greenhouse gases we emitted would still be in the atmosphere, they would still be absorbing solar radiation, and until they dissipated, the planet would continue to warm. So I was always kind of incorporating that into my communication. What uh, Dr. Mann's research found is that's actually not quite the case, that warming trend is happening. But at the same time, you have oceans, you have forests, you have all these carbon sinks sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And that has a net cooling effect. And those two, the warming effect and the cooling cancel out and the climate would actually stabilize within a few years. So hmm. that to me was really exciting and actually a bit of a kick in the pants because to think that we get emissions down to zero and that's it, climate stable. It's not Back to pre-industrial times, it's still warmer, but it stabilizes. And to me, that's exciting to think that could happen in my lifetime. That could happen in all of our lifetimes if we work at it. Um, it's not something that will take decades to stabilize. But a lot of journalists were really in the chat. I was watching them kind of struggle to wrap their head around just how to communicate this because they were worried that it would come off like they weren't taking climate as seriously and that people wouldn't have to take it as seriously because of this research. That was not at all how I saw it, but I guess I understand where they were coming from. But to me, that's where I'm like, if you're just fully honest and you really think stuff through and you're critical, then that is less overwhelming than anything else because you're not having to like try to suss out, is this true? Is this not true? How concerned should I, like just taking in the facts um, and certainly this fact was a rather exciting one. Um, to me, that makes things less overwhelming. Well, and just like that bit of research too, would you would think like, you know, I think I probably reacted to it the same way that you did, where it's like, 
know, this is a positive goal that we can reach, you know, like this, this now puts something like gives us something to reach for. Exactly. Yeah. Which could be motivating uh, for people. I'm really surprised. Well, I guess I'm, I'm surprised, but not overly surprised that that was the reaction of some of the journalists. I mean, I just found a piece of research the other day um, that was talking about someone did this sort of language analysis of all of these scientific abstracts from papers and then compared it to news stories about similar topics. And they had some kind of fancy algorithm to sort of assess the, the level of certainty, basically. Uh, in both the pieces of communication. And they found that, which was opposite to what I would have expected, that science journalism actually tends to understate confidence and um, just the the results and stuff in, in general, which, you know, you always hear about how like, oh, media is always like exaggerating things. And, um, you know, you have in the science communication circles that I'm in, people are always talking about, we got to get away from like promising the future and like, you know, the can the cure for cancer 10 years away or cold fusion, you know, 10 years away. And then it's it's always 10 years away, right? But it turned out that it was like, they were actually doing the opposite which I could see is you you understand that natural inclination to be like, okay, we don't want to oversell, we want to be like, keep things in perspective or whatever. But when it comes to and the researchers, their example was vaccines, when it comes to vaccines, you want to you don't want to undersell the confidence that the actual scientists have in that, right. And I think it's the same with this, right? It's like, why not find some good news story? Yeah, think about a scientist's job, the scientific method, you ask a question, hypothesis, whatever, do an experiment, analyze your data, make all your peers analyze your data, redo the experiment, publish a jillion papers, and then finally you have some piece of information that you can say is a fact. And with climate science being a relatively newer field of science, that's all happening right now. Uh, the tornadoes that happened in December in the United States, in the Kentucky, uh, that region, there isn't scientific proof yet that tornadoes are affected by climate change. There's reason to believe they could be. Certainly you think about how climate change will create warmer uh, air temperatures in the Gulf and how that could maybe cause winds and what have you, but there's not any clear scientific evidence to say those tornadoes were caused by climate change. And a lot of climate advocates were coming out during the tornadoes and being like, look, there's climate change again. I was like, guys, calm down. Uh, like, let's actually look at this. Um, and so it's interesting. I think that scientists are always very upfront about what they know and what they don't know. I love having our interviewees on uh, who are all professors at universities and I'll ask them sometimes what questions are you asking like what more do you want to know and obviously they're working on something otherwise they wouldn't have a job that's <laughs> that's what they do <laughs> so it's important to remember kind of what the role of scientists are and they're always going to have confidence intervals in their models where they're saying look the climate could do this it could do that Sometimes those confidence intervals don't even go far enough. Uh, the heat wave that's going on in both the Arctic and Antarctica right now, that's like 70 degrees above the average temperature. That was not something they modeled. That They didn't predict that. But certainly <laughs> yeah. they can take a look and say, all right, we didn't know this would happen. How do we reassess our data? How do we go from here and model what we think the future might look like now? 
Um, so yeah, scientists are happy to say they're wrong, happy to say when they don't know something. And I think that that should make us trust them even more. That shouldn't be a, oh, well then you can't trust science. No, I think the fact that they're willing to be that honest with you means that they're very, very trustworthy people. So, I mean, I see a couple, a couple things here. I mean, part of it is that most people don't hear directly from scientists and they don't have the luxury of talking to them like we do. I mean when they tune into your show or they tune into my show and they hear an interview with the scientist, they get that, they get that. But most people are probably getting information from, you know, news sources. So then it's gone through some kind of filter, whatever process to get to them. So they, they lose that, what you just said there, where it's like, where the like if you know a scientist and you talk to them and you understand their job, they're very happy to be like, well, I'm wrong. And now I think this, or it, this is the new thing. This is where we need more data. You know, that's, I think that's, you know, having done science, that's the sort of, that's the big driver for a lot of people is being in that space where it's like, well, what now? Okay. We thought we figured this out, but now what? Like there's always another question. So sort of being that tip of the spear of knowledge is really exciting for a lot of people. But I wanted to cue on another thing where you were talking about, you know, you, okay. So there's not really a, a direct line you can draw between say any, you know, climactic, weather event like tornadoes or something like that and directly to climate change right but there's reason to believe that it's all it's all connected this kind of thing so just that sort of nuance right is something that i've cued in on uh with the pandemic as well i feel like sometimes science communicators scientists and stuff are reluctant to give the public the full information in a way that it's like they we need to simplify this we need to make it so it's like they can understand it and stuff like this. And I saw it with public health measures. You know, there was there was all these like blanket things where it's just like, don't do this. You can do that, you know, whereas it's, it, it could have been a little more nuanced given the fact that most people, everybody understands disease. You know, like we've all had a cold. We all wash our hands. We've grown up covering our mouths, you know, this kind of thing. So I just feel like giving the public, giving people a bit more credit in terms of understanding the nuance of some of these things is probably a good thing. So I'm kind of interested in your take on that because it sounded like that's a little bit what you were kind of getting at with the with the tornado example. Yeah, first off, just to clarify, that's the case with tornadoes, but certainly uh, hurricanes, wildfires, that type of thing. Okay. There are times where you can actually draw a direct link and say climate change contributed right. to this disaster, this amount in this way and that's very very new science um and really exciting new science but um but yeah tornadoes are a special case um in terms of your question though i find that i mean i just love getting into the nuance i think that's honestly what ended up making me interested in climate change is getting into the nuance getting into the fact that there is no perfect solution. Every solution has pros and cons. We've got an episode coming out this week on solar power where we spend most of it like, all right, solar power is really cool. What could be improved? There are some issues to talk about. Fixable issues, but still stuff we got to get into. So I find that really fun. And I think that people are smart. People are curious. And why not give them the full information help them kind of walk them through your critical thinking process, which I always do, and then kind of leave it to them to see where they'll end up. I personally believe that environmentalists who try to skew data or make up information, I've run into a few of those, that really disappoints me because 
climate change, if you look at the facts, it's pretty clear. We we want to work on this. It's going to cost us money. It's going to cost our health. It's going to destroy ecosystems that provide us a lot of important services. It affects our food, our water, our security, our justice. I could go on and on. It makes sense to want to try to improve on that. And I don't think that you need to exaggerate a statistic or um, create a extra doom and gloom headline to be able to get that across. I think the facts on their own convey that. So that's always been my approach to just be as upfront as I can. Uh, that's why our episodes have to be a little longer than I wish they could be, because I do want to take everyone through all that um, and not withhold anything. But I think that in my approach to kind of communication, science communication stuff in general has been this too, that I think that people, you know, you look at podcasts that are super popular. There are these long conversations, not all of them, but some of them, and some of the most popular ones are these long conversations. And I think that's something that kind of caught a lot of people off guard. But it's those, you know, this is the opportunity to get into those nuances. It's, it's the chance to actually have this sort of back and forth discussion and lay out the critical thinking and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And I think people are here for it. the podcast, the way that podcasting has like taken over and even just like, I don't know, probably like three or four years ago when I was doing, you know, a podcasting workshop with a bunch of science journalists. Uh, most of them had never done podcasts at all. They were all writers. And I was telling them, you know, about this show that we're currently doing right now. I was like, yeah, I talked to people for like an hour, you know, hour, sometimes longer, whatever. And they were just like, what? No, you can't do that. You have to edit it. You have to edit it. Like it's got to be. And I was just like, you don't. <laughs> it's the Internet. You can do whatever you want. And I think they just like now I think everybody's familiar with, you know, for example, the Joe Rogan podcast for for the wrong reasons, probably. But I mean, that show's been going on for 10 years. And I got to give credit to the fact that like they found that people like that, you know, they like that long conversation. They like getting into the nuance. It's like there's a reason that's popular. And I think that these are things that like, you know, maybe the, the science communication people that aren't really maybe they're lagging behind a little bit in some of the trends can realize that it's like look to other popular mediums and see what other people are doing and you can better understand what your audience is capable of listening to wanting to listen to these kind of things yeah certainly hope you're right because that's what i'm trying to do as well <laughs> yeah well i guess we'll see um I got a specific one because we were talking about, you know, no, so you were mentioning that like no, uh, no solution is perfect. What's your take on nuclear? It seems to me we can do a lot of good with it. But then, of course, you have the safety issue, which I think has gotten better over the years. I'm not an expert, but I think it's gotten better since the 80s, I would assume. Um, and especially if you're you're placing these things in in places that aren't like next to the ocean on a fault line such as japan or something like that um it seems like it could be you know something that could really help and then of course yes we have the waste problem but it's like not all problems are equal you know the waste problem is is a little you know less scary than four degrees climate change that kind of thing so i'm always curious about this because where i live here in germany like they they've decided to just get rid of all of nuclear because there was a really concerted push by environmental groups and stuff especially after fukushima where they were just we don't want this it's dangerous we, we got to get rid of this and then their they became more reliant on coal and then russia for gas which with the current political situation we know that's not a great situation now so i don't know it just seemed kind of short-sighted do you have any like 
nuanced information about nuclear or some thoughts on it at yeah, all? Yeah, we did an episode on nuclear, and we interviewed uh, Jacopo Buongiorno, who's a nuclear scientist at MIT. Uh, so that was a really interesting episode to me. First off, I agree, don't put them on a fault line. Why would you do that? But <laughs> beyond that, I think what we found, I kind of went in just not knowing and being curious. I mean, I'd heard mixed messages before. Certainly, like you said, a lot of environmental groups have been opposed to nuclear. And I was kind of, I came out optimistic. I think that some of the concerns with nuclear, first off, safety in terms of the idea of a nuclear disaster like Chernobyl or Fukushima, that's very, very, I mean, that is improving. That's, it's unlikely that that kind of thing would continue to happen. But even if you take those numbers into account, if you compare nuclear deaths to every other energy source, you think about the deaths in the coal mines, the, I mean, all these different things, Nuclear is on par with like solar and wind as being like the safest energy source. These disasters, I mean, Three Mile Island in the United States is considered one of the biggest disasters. There were no deaths. I don't even think there were injuries, if I remember correctly. So mm -hmm. the safety thing is a little overblown. Where there is a safety issue is in the uranium mines. And we do need to get better at mining uranium safely not doing it on indigenous land, which it has happened a bit too much, but that's improvable. If you look at the waste issue, that's, again, a serious issue. Certainly, a lot of the waste right now is at the facilities in what was designed to be a temporary storage spot. And in the United States in particular, we have not found a permanent storage spot that everyone has agreed on. But if mm -hmm. you take all of the nuclear waste that the United States has created since the inception of nuclear energy, it would fit in a football stadium, like uh, 10 feet deep on a football field. So it's, I mean, that image sounds like a lot, it's but when much. you think about for decades powering the entire country, it's not as big as it seems like. So there's that. And then... When you look at the cost, it is kind of expensive to set up the facility. Once it's running, it's not too bad. Water is a big challenge because you need just a ridiculous amount to do all the cooling and all that. But yeah, cost, uh, certainly it is not as cheap as solar and wind. And that's where I think that may be the best argument in favor of solar and wind uh, taking up a larger chunk than nuclear. But when you consider that like solar and wind... It is true that the sun isn't always shining, the wind isn't always blowing, especially in the morning and at night you have spikes in the amount of electricity people are using and you need to be able to power that somehow. So you could continue to use natural gas to do that, but that is emitting carbon, emitting methane, doing all that stuff. Nuclear doesn't do that. Um, and then when you think about nuclear facilities, use so little land compared to any of these you can generate so much electricity in just this teeny patch of land. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be excited about. I th obviously, the issues are real issues, and they do need to be addressed. And obviously, even though safety is improving, it needs to continue to improve. But I'm, I just couldn't come out as anti-nuclear as a lot of environmentalists seem to be when I actually looked at the facts and looked at the nuance. It seems like 
it uh, certainly could be part of a carbon-free energy future. Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, like the, the argument for solar and wind is still stronger in terms of making up more of a mix. But again, this is a nuanced thing, right? That people, a lot of people I talk to casually about this kind of stuff don't really seem to understand, or maybe they're just not you know, engaging with that on purpose. I don't know. My hometown, Calgary, Alberta, it's, it's a oh, oil yeah. producing region. So <laughs> I grew up with a lot of, uh, family uh, there. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. That. So, you know, there's a prevailing attitude there of oil all the way, but it's like, it's, yeah, it's like you, you can still, maybe you got to burn a little bit of gas. Maybe it's nuclear, maybe it's geothermal, something more stable to, you know, to smooth out those peaks in production, in consumption. And then also when the sun's not shining or the, the turbines aren't, aren't turning, that kind of thing. Like it does, like, again, when you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, it's maybe we're still burning a little bit of gas, but less gas yeah. is a good thing. Like, let's move in that direction. Let's make these steps. And it doesn't have to be all our one because the amount of times I've just run into people that are just like, well, you can't power everything on wind turbines. It's like, yeah, I nobody's saying that we will yeah yeah <laughs> you know nobody's saying that that's the that's the thing and then you get the oh well they gotta they gotta mine all the stuff to make wind turbines yeah we do one thing at a time you know let's let's move in a direction that's just getting a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better and that's again what i appreciate about your yeah, take that's and, what i was gonna say show. it's gonna be some all of the above scenario there's no perfect energy solution. All of them have drawbacks, and ultimately you want to create a portfolio that covers everything you need. And so nuclear could play a role of that backup to come in when it's the end of the day and the sun has set and there's a bunch of people taking showers and cooking dinner and need electricity. It You can also work yeah. on storage with batteries for solar and wind. You can also use geothermal, like you said. There could be a role for natural gas, if that's okay with you. So, yeah, it's certainly going to be a combination of things. There's no one perfect solution, and all of them have challenges to work on, kinks to work out, and they're certainly very fixable for these clean energy sources. It's not like they're emitting carbon or spewing coal ash that you have to worry about. It's really things like, all right, how do you mine tellurium safely? How do you get all the silicon you need? How do you use this acid in the manufacturing? It's a little easier, but yeah, worth having all these conversations and getting into the nuance. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it, this is just a, maybe a bit of a tangent, but I'm really into the idea right now that, um, you know, material science will be the, the biggest one of the big, you know, fields of the future, because just there's so many things that we're producing that we're realizing, you know, that you, yeah, you need, you know, crazy amounts of, you know, cobalt or, you know, tellurium, whatever the one, the one that you mentioned. <laughs> there was. Yeah. yeah. You know, all these crazy things that people have never heard about and, and silicon chips and things like this. So like scientists that are out there trying to find like what are more efficient materials that we can use can we create synthetic um things that we don't have to pull out of the ground that do the same thing like all of this stuff like so i'm kind of like i gotta keep an eye on the material science space because five years ago i would have been like that's some boring chemistry stuff that nobody wants to talk about 
but I think it's going to become more and more of an issue. And there'll be a lot of exciting yeah. things that come out of And that's the thing, every that. time you find an alternative to something, you need to consider the impacts of the alternative. Um, we did an episode on palm oil pretty recently, and... I learned while doing the re- palm oil, first of all, is responsible for a lot of deforestation, a lot of land use change. It's driven a lot of species uh, to endangerment, certainly a lot of problems there. Palm oil is the most land efficient vegetable oil by a long shot. And I tweeted this and got trolled like I never have before by palm oil <laughs> activists. And I was like... Th- it's just a fact about palm oil. I don't know what the problem is. Um, but it's important. It's not to say, look, to their credit, there has been the roundtable on sustainable palm oil for, I think, over a decade that really hasn't accomplished all that much. So I think they're sitting there saying, look, you, you guys got to try your sustainable palm oil solution. It didn't work. Let us try our ban palm oil and hate everything about its solution. But again, it's important to consider the alternatives. If you then said, all right, let's grow a bunch of soybeans and use soybean oil, well, then you're causing deforestation in the Amazon as opposed to in the forests of Indonesia and Malaysia, um, and more of it because it takes more land to produce. So yeah, it's important to kind of think all this through and really consider the nuance of each of these issues. And I think Materials is another great example. If you're looking at scaling up solar and wind, you have to think, all right, how much silicon do we need? How much uh, for wind? It'll use rare earth minerals. For solar, it's using stuff that is rarer than rare earth minerals. Where do you get them? How do you uh, manufacture them? Uh, And that, again, you talk about energy independence. A lot of these products are coming from China. You have to think about the national security implications, I guess, in terms of Obviously, it's not as globally connected a market as oil or natural gas as we're uh, seeing in stark terms today, but it still is. And uh, you have to think about that, too. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing we're talking about, like, understand the nuance, we should dig into the nuance, we should do these kind of things. But then, you know, as we're talking about the palm oil right there, I could see some some of the problems with say like so now I guess I'll go devil's advocate of all the nuanced stuff that we that we were saying is just like this I think can be an overwhelming thing as well for the average person right like so they're like well I like using palm oil I thought it was a good alternative but now I'm told it's not or vice versa with soybeans or whatever so it's like how do we how does the average person start to think about these things is the message again just like do what you can kind of thing because that's kind of been my approach in my personal life is just being like we've stopped eating meat every day you know now we maybe consume you know meat twice a week and everything but you know because we thought that would be a good idea you know that kind of thing what would you i don't know i guess say like to the regular person like listening like getting overwhelmed with all this consumer choices what to do with my money how do i how do i a lot of these are issues at the systems level so i hope that for an individual, when we get into all this nuance, like take it into the extent that it's fun. And once it's overwhelming, like it's okay. There are (laughs) people who are thinking about this, who are paid to do that. So it's, it's not your job per se, but in terms of where individuals can make an impact, I, I always feel like, cause there's a debate, right? Between individuals make up the collective and every bit helps to, 
climate change is caused by these few dozen corporations and individual action is just diverting attention from the real problem. And I think there's a answer somewhere in the middle there. Um, but what I kind of look at is where individual action can spark community level change. And for that, I have five tips for individuals that I like to give. So number one is find low hanging fruit. Like you were saying, do what you can. Uh, so if you're not a big meat eater, you can cut back on meat. Or if you already are, you can pat yourself on the back. For me, I love meat. I just can't. But um, for me, I am not a big fashion person and fast fashion contributes a lot of carbon emissions itself. So I tend to just wear out my clothes as long as I can. Once they've got holes in them, they become a pajama shirt. And then uh, there you go. <laughs> so uh, my girlfriend's pissed off because I've kept this shirt from like ninth grade that is literally peeling off onto the bed. And <laughs> finally, I threw it out the other day. But I mean, you get the point. Like, was that an emotional process getting rid of the shirt? All the text little... on it has peeled off. It's just like a plain navy blue shirt now. Um, but yeah, I mean, wh whatever works best for you is uh, something you can do and give yourself credit when you're doing a good thing. Even if there's, I mean, if you are concerned about agriculture but love meat, you can even look to see all right what's been eco-certified, that kind of thing. Um, number two would be to do your research. And this is getting into this fun, nuanced stuff. The example I like to use is uh, we hear all about electric vehicles. It actually has a smaller climate impact to continue to use your current vehicle to the end of its life, assuming its fuel efficiency is decent, than it is to buy a new electric car because of all the inputs that go into building a new car. So Things like that, if you do your research, you very often find that individual solutions can not only help the environment, but actually save you money. If you've got more efficient heating, if you even, depending on where you live, solar panels on your roof could save you on your electric bill. So there are things like that where if you do your research, if you understand the nuance, uh, the environment and economy are very much aligned um, on a financial way. Then third uh, would be to uplift others who do good things. So I don't know if you have this in Germany. Here in the U.S., there's just a ton of vegan bashing. Um, and I, it, I mean, it's funny, but like, why? <laughs> they're, they're doing us a solid. But I think it goes, I mean, like, if I wore that blue shirt out in public, I sure I would get made fun of. Like, and I should never wear that shirt in public. But you get the point. Like, if you're yeah. trying to do a good thing, uh, I think it's better to kind of encourage people and uh it goes for the people too like don't be condescending about it but um if you uplift others who are doing good things i think that can help motivate other people to be like oh i'll maybe go vegan now that i know i'm not gonna get made fun of for it or something number four would be to find ways to use your voice um for some people that's activism or volunteering or what have you that never suited me well i as you can tell, since I love nuance, I can't put anything on a sign and feel happy about it. Um, I also just don't like large crowds <laughs> and loud noises, so there's that. But I found that writing and podcasting and doing this kind of stuff was what suited me. So that's what I decided to do. Uh, for you, it could be something in your home, something at your company. Uh, there's so many different directions you can go. And then the fifth one, and what I consider to be the most important, is try talking to someone you disagree with. Um, it's, it doesn't even have to be about the environment, but I find 
It's true in the U.S. I think it's true elsewhere in the world, too, where the two political sides now actively dislike each other. It's not just um, disagreeing. And because of that, you're not talking to each other. So you're not on the same page about what the problems are. And when I look back in history here in the U.S., we had a period in the 1970s where we passed the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Policy Act, uh, established the Environmental Protection Agency, all this stuff in like a six-year time span with a Democratic Congress and Republican presidents Nixon and Ford. So people at that time, uh, there had been a like an oil spill in 69. Uh, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, came out in 62. People were kind of on the same page about the environment is important. We want to protect it. And they got all this stuff done. And this is continuing to be the environmental legislation that protects the environment in the United States to a large extent. So knowing that there was all that common ground at the time, because people were able to talk and engage and be on the same page, even if you disagree on solutions, which I'm sure they did back then, they made progress. And so I think just being able to have friendly, cordial conversations, even if you don't like each other, even if you're not friends, um, that's a step in that direction. I think that's a really good point. And it's something that, you know, I feel like when I talk to people uh, about, yeah, things that you disagree with or something, I think it's very easy to reframe those conversations with finding what can we agree on right because i think that's at the end of the day whether these people are like again you know citing you know the attitudes of my home my hometown the with the oil you know enthusiasm is really jobs right like it's it's people don't want to lose their job and so it's like once you kind of understand that and be like well look at i don't want you to lose your job either but let's find way like there there is ways that we can address that situation like do you really care if you're drilling oil or you're drilling geothermal wells like is that going to bother you <laughs> that, that, that you're doing one of the, it's still the same job essentially you know and then you find that you can find that common ground so i think that's important uh what you said but i also just want to get your thoughts then on social media is a big uh part of the world and part of the communication that's happening in the world we say that right like we just kind of say that as this blanket term but i it's tough to it's tough to look at the discourse on social media and again maybe this is you know me kind of going into the dread thing and not looking at the nuance and, and the positive side of it as well but it just having those conversations those difficult conversations that you're talking about maybe twitter's not the best place to do that i don't <laughs> i don't <laughs> Just maybe your thoughts on, yeah, like social media and like, you know, that as a tool uh, or, or a, a, a new influence on communication, you know, how do we you know have these conversations? Do you think it's best in person or is there a way to do it on social media? That kind of thing. Yeah, it's tricky. I think social media, there, there just seem to be a lot of people that go to start a fight or start an argument and that that's maybe an outlet for them. And obviously when you're talking to a stranger and maybe you don't even use your face as your profile, it's easy to just feel like you can say whatever you want. And I think everyone knows that. I'm not saying anything new there. But mm -hmm. for my experience, I find having them in person works. I'll text friends who are far left or far right and I'll kind of learn what their views are and learn from them. Um, and I do really learn from people across the political spectrum. And I think that ultimately, it's more the intent behind the conversation. If you want to start a fight or convince someone that you're right, it's unlikely to really be that productive. 
whenever I go into a conversation like that, I'm just trying to learn and I'm curious what they think. Uh, I'll very often send a article I wrote to a liberal friend and a conservative friend and be like, Hey, what do you think? And if both of them like it, I feel like I did a good job. Um, (laughs) But even just, I'll send a, I sent a message to a friend the other day with a environmental story and I was like, okay, what's your take on this? I'm curious. I think those conversations can actually be really productive and I learn a lot from them and it's really informed my communication style because a large part of what we do on the sweaty penguin is try to reach a very broad political audience. Um, I guess is people on the way, way, way far left or way, way, way far right might not like what we do because we're just so measured and uh, not really taking a political side. But I think there's a lot of people that are more just like, okay, like, let's set the politics aside for a moment, talk about what's going on, and then explore some options. And so we will talk about various solutions, and some of them are political solutions, uh, which I do think are some of the solutions with the most potential, but we'll present them as options. We'll talk about the pros and cons. And our listeners have the chance to decide what they like and what they don't like. And I think that that's really important for what we do. It's sort of, that's been kind of with us from day one. And that's been part of my communication style for a long time. And I think the way that I'm able to do that is by having those conversations with people from all different perspectives and learning, all right, what would piss off this friend and what would make them open their mind and how can I frame it in the right way? Yeah, I think I agree with everything you said there. I think for me, I, the the thing with social media, uh, the algorithm oh is a, is a real problem. <laughs> you know, where it's it's promoting promoting that anger. You know, it seems to like get people hooked. But that seems again like something that's like okay, well, this is at the system level. We need you know some kind of something to sort of legislate that or whatever. That's a that's a deep problem on its own. But yeah, I think it's it's like you said, it's intent. It's how you use the medium. It's it's as long as the people that are coming to the table to have that conversation or want to have it in good faith, then then you can then you can have those conversations. So as we wrap it up here, where can people find uh, Sweaty Penguin? And if you had, maybe you could give us like a what's an episode if you can think of one off the top of the head to get people into the show or one that you particularly liked, maybe it was an interview or something like that, that you would recommend? Sure. Uh, So you can find the Sweaty Penguin wherever podcasts are hosted, Apple, Google, Spotify. Uh, We're also, we have our website, thesweatypenguin.com. Our partners at PBS Peril and Promise or at pbs.org slash peril and promise. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, uh, Reddit. And if you want to find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. There you can not only support the show, but also get merch, bonus content, a whole bunch of cool stuff. In terms of an episode I recommend, I think there's a lot of good ones. If you're looking to, if you want just like a quick taste of kind of what we're about, you can pick any of the Tip of the Iceberg episodes. We're actually starting to do them weekly this week. So those are breaking down a environmental news story and then answering a question from our audience members. And by the way, please send in questions. We really appreciate those. Uh, The recent one on the IPCC report that we were talking about, I think was a really good one, kind of breaking down that report and what it means and why it's not necessarily lining up with all the doom and gloom headlines about it. Um, In terms of deep dive episodes, I think our chocolate one was one that really resonated with me. Uh, Chocolate has been the 
a very large contributor to deforestation in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire to countries in Western Africa. Um, it's also led to some child labor issues. And it was a really interesting issue in the sense that it was largely driven by stuff going on elsewhere in the supply chain. So hmm. I think a lot of people would be inclined to be like, oh, there's children working here, like blame these farmers. But really it's it's so much more complicated and intricate than that. So I found that episode really interesting also just because it's uh, chocolate, which we're all familiar with. Certainly a challenge to make funny, but we, we did our best. <laughs> well, I wanted to, yeah, thank you again for, for coming on. It was great. Um, great to great to talk to you. I love, like I said, I love your sort of middle of the road kind of approach to this thing. Get the politics out. Let's just talk about how we can how we can find solutions and very realistic approach. And I think, you know, just kind of going back to what we were talking about, social media and stuff like this, you get those extremes, right? But I I, I truly believe that most people are in this middle area. And so would be well served to listen to a show like yours and get that kind of take. Because like I said, when I was listening to that episode, Tip of the Iceberg episode about the IPCC report, I was just like, man, this just makes so much sense. Like this is, a, it speaks to me in a way that it's like something you can get on board with, right? <laughs> because it's, it's not that doom and gloom, but it's also not, everything's fine. It's like, yeah. we're going to have to adapt to this. We're going to have to figure this out. We've come this far. Let's keep going. You know, it's very inspirational in that way. So Thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything else that you want to uh, touch on that I didn't bring up or that we didn't cover yet? I don't think so, but thank you so much for having me. I love getting deep into all these intricate, uh, said the word nuance like 80 times today, but that's awesome. I love doing that. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that with me. My thanks again to Ethan Brown. The show is the sweaty penguin podcast again wherever you get podcasts or on their website thesweatypenguin.com and on social media just search the sweaty penguin you may notice new music new ending music brought to you by my good friend and great musician matt walkie he was a member of the band freak motif that we've been using the music for for years he's offered to give us a, a few of his own little tidbits that he's been working on so check him out on instagram at walkie music give him a shout tell him to post more things there get some more tunes out and you can also find his website meterroom.ca thank you so much matt for the music we look forward to highlighting more of your tracks on the podcast as they come out again thank you all for listening uh, please do hit us up on twitter instagram at two brad for you visit the website two brad for you.wordpress.com which little hint might be changing in the near future so keep an eye on that we're going to try and streamline everything make everything a lot easier for you to get in touch with us to donate to the show whatever it is you want to do for now go to two brad for you.wordpress.com and get all the details you need right there thanks so much everyone stay safe bye for now